Excuse me, my good lady, if I may humbly request that you seek out the candy basket of San Fernando, or else my child will die? Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. This week we talk about side quests in God of War Ragnarok and every other game that has them. Why do NPCs need us to deliver their mail? And why is it sometimes kind of fun to do that? I'm Maddie Myers. I'm Jason Schreier. And I'm Kirk Hamilton. And hello. 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 It's us again. Clickety-clack. Clack, click, clock. That's almost it, Jason. Do you want to try that again? Or do you feel like we shouldn't give the people what they want? Or we should? I think we should leave it at that. Uh-huh. So it was click, click, clock. It was like the third click. Clickety, the clack, mouse clack, broke. clack, 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 clack. Sure, How sure, many okay. clicks yeah. are there? If you're somebody who knows the answer to that question as to how many there are, and we won't, uh-huh. we won't tell you. No. We, we'll refuse if asked. You have to, you have to know. If you it's already only, know. If you know, you know. If you know, I thought you know. It was just three. <laughs> Jason. I thought it was three clicks. <laughs> Jason. We're not telling people. We're making them know. Oh, it's a secret. Okay. Stop spoiling it for people. If you if you (laughs) want that kind of information, or if you already have it and you just want it reinforced emotionally, then I think you should be a Max One member, which is the podcast network we're on. And if if you were to do that, you would go to maximumfun.org/slash/join, and then you would become a member for five dollars a month, and then you would find out how many clicks there are. That's the first thing. But then the mm-hmm. other thing is that you would get monthly bonus episodes from us. And this month, that is going to be us spilling the beans, talking spoilers beans. about God of War Ragnarok, a video game mm-hmm. that I beat and that I think Jason beat and that Kirk might beat in time. <laughs> Kirk is time. definitely going to beat. Kirk is like two hours from beating. Are there any magic beans in this game? I know there are giants. Is there a magic, are there any, is there reference to magic beans? There's like a Do tree. Do you want me to answer that? This is the kind of thing that would only be in the beans cast, Kirk, and I can't. Oh, that's I a spoiler. <laughs> I can't answer that. Don't tell me. I can't me. tell you that information and I won't <laughs> tell you that information. Okay, I appreciate but, that. Oh no. But. I'll discover the beans on my Kirk, own. Kirk, if you want to get into <laughs> cryptocurrency, I could sell you some magic beans mm, true, mm. true. <laughs> why hasn't anyone made that no one should do that i take i take back everything i said anyway go to maximumfund.org slash join <laughs> become a member you would not only get the god of war ragnarok beans cast but so many other beans casts from us and also beans talks where we just shoot the shit about our lives and answer answer deep questions all yeah, kinds of things there's a whole backlog in there but I, I gotta I gotta take a big digression today because we're talking digressions. We're getting off That's the beaten true. path. We're That's we're taking we the are. road less traveled. This entire podcast has already just been a digression. No, it's true. Up to now, it's been we on the rails. It's been linear. Like, path. Hey, let's go on an adventure. Let's go exploring before we go save the world from Odin and. Crow. That's right. Like the meteor is mm-hmm. coming closer and closer and closer to Earth, but right before it strikes, let's just take a little break. Let's like clean mm-hmm. everything up. Let's see Let's what's going on chukabas. in the villages. Mm-hmm. So, Kirk, why don't you why don't you be the NPC who tells tells me and Jason what we're supposed to do? Well, the thing is, if you want to get the platinum <laughs> triple click trophy, oh no, <laughs> you're going to need to do some side quests, and that's what we're talking about today. We've we've all been playing God of War, and that game has a lot of side quests. I've been doing a lot of the side quests. That's why I haven't finished. I've been sort of reveling in being in the side questy middle Mm -hmm. because that's a place I really like to be in a game like this and um, we kind of wanted to talk a little more about God of War but also to just talk about 
this type of game design because it's become so much kind of richer and more complex over the last 10 or 15 years. The whole idea of a side quest has really evolved. So that's our hot topic for today. We're talking about side quests, about what we like and what we don't like about them, etc. Um, I guess, first of all, do either of you have any favorite side quests that come to mind before we get into specific types of side quests that we might be talking about? I feel uh, like I've said mine before, but what is friendship again. if not just telling the same stories over and over again? <laughs> Assassin's Creed Origins. Heard of it? Anyway, mm. it's a good game with some great side quests. I, I feel like when I was at Kotaku, I every time I like covered a vacation day, I would just take that opportunity to write about Assassin's Creed Origins again because it wasn't timely <laughs> and no one could stop me. Like It was Memorial Day or whatever, and I was the only person there. So I was like, time to write about all the best side quests in Assassin's Creed Origins. There are some really, mm -hmm. really great ones in that game. There are also some extremely boring ones, but... Uh, there are a couple that I remember. I know early on there's one which I think is, I don't know if it's actually labeled as a side quest, but there's one that's called like Ambush at the Temple, where Bayek, the main character, gets ambushed, quote unquote, by a bunch of children who want to play hide and seek with him. There are many mm. side quests involving children because Bayek's son is dead and he's grieving that, but also he has this very hopeful, optimistic attitude and is really caring towards every child he meets. And um, similarly, I know there's another side quest I really loved where you help some children rescue a dog that they have, a, a pet dog who's also kind of their caretaker in life, like some sort of street urchins who ask you for help finding this mysterious warrior who protects them and it turns out to be a dog. I remember really enjoying that quest as well. I just love that game and I feel like the side quests really make the game. I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say the side quests are better than the main game, but to me, they're a part of the rich tapestry fair, <laughs> fair. of AC Origins and definitely something I recommend about the game. Nice. Um, Jason, do you have any favorite favorite side quests? Yeah, I have a whole boatload. I'll um, just pick one. <laughs> okay, the one that always comes to mind is in Skyrim, um, which is a game that has tons of great side quests because the main quest mm -hmm. is just like whatever. So the whole point of that game is to do side quests. And um, people who played Skyrim will probably remember this where you uh, you, you wake up after having a, a few too many drinks. You wake up in a mysterious location and you have no idea what you did and you have to like go around <laughs> and retrace your path. And then there are shenanigans afoot. Um <laughs> It's like The Hangover mm -hmm. set inside the world of Skyrim. <laughs> Man, there's a Witcher 2 quest like that uh, where you go drinking with your friends. And I think this is totally a side quest and you wake up naked and have to find all your stuff and you have this tattoo on your neck. Geralt has a tattoo on his neck. And if you play that and carry your save over to The Witcher 3, he still has the tattoo on his neck. And I think there might be a way to finally get it taken off, but there might not be. It might be that you do a whole quest to get it taken off and then they're like, psych, no, you can't get rid of it. You have it forever. <laughs> and you just still have it. Those quests actually inspired funny. Disco Elysium's entire main story, it turns out. <laughs> right, which is, right, how a side quest can become a main quest. Yeah, I guess mine is probably one of the, maybe, or one that comes to mind is the Thane loyalty mission from Mass Effect yeah. 2. Do you remember this one? Vaguely. It's cool because Thane was one of my favorite characters. He's this assassin, this Drell assassin who is a, a new species that you interact with in Mass Effect 2. And he's just very cool because, I don't know, that he's like a well-written character and has a very 
interesting sort of backstory. The lore of the Dweller is very interesting. And his son is trying to be an assassin like him. And the loyalty mission involves this like kind of detective mission on the Citadel where you track down his son and then eventually try to stop his son from doing an assassination. So you're kind of following the, his target and trying to spot where this assassin might be. So you're up in the like rafters up above the sort of shopping area of the Citadel. And it's very tense and very cool. Um, there's a few things like that in Mass Effect 2 that are really good. Um, we'll get into those. So, all right. So we're going to talk about just generally what makes for a good side quest and also maybe what doesn't the general side questification of video games. I wrote down a list of side quest types. You'll be surprised to hear the two of you contributed some to this as well. Another taxonomy. <laughs> hey, imagine that. Um, I'm going to go through these really fast so then we can just talk sort of broadly and refer back to this list. So here we go really quickly. There is the arena, a combat arena that remixes enemy types from the broader game. There is the racetrack, a racing arena where you race cars, horses, ATVs, foot race, whatever. The tournament, a tournament for the in-game game. Blast, Gwent, Pazak, whatever. Like there's a tournament for that game. The loyalty mission. This is basically a story mission focused on one of your party members that basically feels like a story mission and it can have an impact on the story of the ending, but it is technically a side mission. There's the collectathon where you're off collecting things, and that can look a lot of different ways. It can, we'll talk about it. There's a bunch of different types of collectathons. The bossathon, a series of optional boss fights, culminating usually in one very hard boss fight. There's the secret side quest, which isn't labeled in your journal, but is something you maybe didn't even realize you were doing or not doing, depending on if you did it or didn't do it. There's harder puzzles, please, where there's basically just more puzzles. So whatever puzzles you're doing in the game, you're going to be doing harder versions of those puzzles. There's the treasure map, which has become more and more popular in games. That's where you're given a clue, maybe a map, maybe some bit of text, and there's treasure somewhere out in the world and you need to go find it. Um, I wrote this one down as Animal Farm, and I describe it as basically chocobo breeding, but I know there are other games that do this. Um, anything where you're like combining things into for more things and doing formulas to try to create the ultimate thing. But I think of breeding a gold chocobo in FF7. Merchandise Spotlight. This is master the ins and outs of a store or trading network to try to get all the things. There's It's a Mystery, which I do think deserves its own category. This is when you have to solve a mystery. You talk to NPCs, you gather clues. Usually you can get the mystery wrong. There is The Ancient Dungeon. This was a Jason edition, I believe. This is a good one. A big optional dungeon, usually with procedurally generated floors or something that exists to just let you spend more and more time playing. And then there's the fetch quest, of course, a very important one to mention, where you just have to bring object A to person B. And sometimes you just do that. Sometimes it kind of expands and gets more complex over the course of the game. So those are just some types. We'll refer back to that list. But yeah, I'm, I guess the thing I think we can get at is how side quests have evolved over the last 10 or 15 years and how they've become such a standardized part of video games, and I guess that's the god of war of it all. Of a certain the, type of video game, a game right? With RPG elements. The the AAA, like the Sony style game, which God of War is really making me realize how kind of homogenous that's become. I I don't mean that in the bad way that it necessarily sounds. I think it feels like there's been a lot of these because Horizon Forbidden West also came out, but playing them in close proximity, yeah. it's striking how similar they are, and especially in terms of the quest design, and there's so much side content, and it's sort of categorized very similarly. Mm-hmm. Well, it just happened that in the PS4 era, four different studios that were all kind of like either struggling or couldn't really figure out an identity for themselves, they all came out with these blockbuster games, and that would be Sony Santa Monica with a 
God of War reboot, Guerrilla Games with Horizon Zero Dawn, um, uh, Sucker Punch with Ghost of Tsushima, and then Insomniac with Spider-Man. And those are four very similar games in a lot of ways. Um, I wanted to say that I think something that that struck me about God of War Ragnarok's side quests and something that um, I really enjoyed about them is that a lot of them are thematically tied to the game, which I think is a, a relatively recent phenomenon. Also, oftentimes games will have side quests that are just like, go off and do this funny thing or this weird thing or whatever, and, and that's all well and good. But what is cool about um, this is, so for example, there's this really cool side quest in Alfheim where you have to free these giant jellyfish. Um, And at the end of it, uh, you learn, uh, spoilers, I suppose, but you learn that the jellyfish, I guess, like thematic spoilers, you learn that in order to reproduce, these jellyfish have to sacrifice um, themselves. And so, of course, you get into this whole conversation between Kratos and Atreus about like what parents would do for their children and the sacrifice they make, which is an ongoing theme in the whole story and really this whole series since since the reboot, um, which I think is is a cool, um, almost literary way to approach these side quests. Um, and I think uh, kind of adds to the to the I don't know feeling of of worthiness, feeling that these side quests are really just like worth spending your time on, as opposed to going around and just like co- collecting things for no reason. I definitely have noticed that that's true lately. That there is more of a thematic, you know, unification between those sorts of quests, especially in God of War. That's true, but that's true in Horizon Forbidden West as well, and true in more of these games. There's a sense that there's a sort of you know, writing czar, I guess that's the creative director who's overseeing (laughs) the way that these things all fit together and saying there needs to be a theme or at least a series of themes. I'd say Ragnarok has a series of themes like we talked about last week. But one of the pleasures sometimes for me of this kind of side quest is when it allows the game to just do something completely different, Mm -hmm. which can also be nice. Like not everything needs to be part of a unified whole. And I'd actually say sometimes with God of War, it's so all part of a unified whole that at times I'm like, the whole is too big. I want I want a little more of just the freestanding stuff of which there's there's plenty but it's not quite as narratively juicy you know like you're just going and fighting bosses or doing puzzles. Mhm. Something else that God of War Ragnarok does that I think is a trend that I would say I first started noticing in the first Dragon Age but I'm sure it goes back beyond that is characters guilting me into doing their side quest. <laughs> and this is now so mm-hmm. common that I've had to like steal myself emotionally into it because I'm very susceptible to this kind of thing with fictional characters telling me about how meaningful it will be if I like go collect all the pieces of their <laughs> necklace or something. And I'm like, uh-huh. I mm-hmm. go get the orb. Maddie, really why haven't you gotten the orb yet? Go get my, oh my orb. God, Come on, yeah. get my orb. <laughs> and if I don't get the orb, like if you go back to that character who asked you to get an orb and and you give them just some of the other things they asked for, they will be like, but what about that orb, though? And like, The orb thing is a funny okay, joke, I, I gotta that. say. <laughs> well, but, okay, here's a more serious example. So one of the very first yeah. side quests in God of War Ragnarok is that Mimir asks you to help shut down some mining rigs that he set up with Odin. And if you don't do it, he will really get on your case about it. Like, I Mm -hmm. briefly tried to, like, sail somewhere else, and I was, like, gonna do the mining rigs. I feel the need to clarify. Like, I was going to do it. (laughs) You're not a bad person. I'm not a bad person. I was going to take down the mining rigs. I 
believe climate change is a problem, and I agree with Mamir on that. And I need to stop. <laughs> Even the during Fimble Winter, climate <laughs> yes. change is still a problem. Climate change is especially a problem during Fimble Winter. Hello, that's literally what it is. <laughs> anyway, um, I like briefly changed my quest, like main demarcation, to something else. And Mamir had a line where he was like. By the way, I still really hope we can get around to those mining rigs. And I was like, dude, I'm literally just changing the compass so I can go get something else briefly. And I like, I wish there was like an option for me to say that to him and be like, I'm getting to it, my friend. But like, I I do remember Dragon Age were some of the first games where I started experiencing like real guilt when I would run into NPCs and they'd be like, oh my God, like hero, I need your help so bad. And I'd be like, what if I don't help this person? And now it's mm-hmm. so common that it's just, it's everything. It's it's just a part of the fabric of every game I play that's of this type of RPG. Yeah, the side stuff in God of War is, so, I mean, those early quests with Mimir are so tied in with the story. I mean, it really does feel like the game would feel incomplete. This was something... Um, if you didn't do them. This is something I, I thought about Horizon Forbidden West as well, where there's a lot of optional dialogue in that game. And we talked about this quite a bit when we talked about that game. But you really do have to be pretty patient with it, just going and talking to these people and really hearing what's going on with them. But then if you do, you do get these nice additional chapters where you learn all about the characters. And then that makes it much more impactful later on when everyone's working together or you know making sacrifices or whatever else happens in that story. Um, and it's a similar deal in God of War where there's like a Cliff's Notes version of the story, and then there's a version of the story with all the other chapters with the supporting cast. And it's pretty interesting to see these games have to create both versions of the story, because that is kind of a new standard. It used to be more the story is the story, the side stuff is the side stuff. That's just other stuff that you're doing. And it maybe kind of impacts it, but it's not, it doesn't feel quite as essential to the main story. I'm thinking of um, Assassin's Creed 2. This was a collectathon, actually, that was the purest kind of a collectathon where you had to collect the feathers. Do the two of you remember this quest in Assassin's Creed 2? No. So it's it, Ezio has to collect these feathers, and the first two, he's collecting them for his little brother, but then his little brother gets killed at the very beginning of the game, and mm-hmm. that's like his origin story, like his motivation is that his... I can't remember who else, but basically a lot of people die and he's... It is an Assassin's Creed game, so yeah, a lot of people die. It is, and this was... Well, and this, well, that didn't really happen in the first Assassin's Creed that's game. True. It was just you were this random guy. So and this was much more like, now we're going to do an origin story, and that's kind of what was a big deal about Assassin's Creed 2. It was much more character-driven in a kind of traditional superhero way. So you've got this... You're like paying tribute to your sibling over the course of the game. I think you're bringing the, fla- the feathers back to somebody. And then if you get them all, you get a nice little cutscene. Like, it is tied in with the story. Um, so it's kind of an early version of that. But now it's like, they're much more involved. You're getting so much uh, so much richer text if you do all of those main sort of loyalty mission style side quests. Mm-hmm. Sounds a lot like Sweet Conan, where if you <laughs> want the real ending, you gotta yeah. collect all the characters. Well, I mean, Sweet Conan was a template for that, right? I mean, th- those were all pretty shallow, but when you take them as a whole, it is this amazing <laughs> feeling. Excuse me. 
<laughs> no, they were all really deep. And I remember every single Thank character's you. name. Right. Thank you. Right. To this Thank day. And I always will. Um, yeah, Kirk, what you're describing, that could be a, an addition to the taxonomy, which is non-optional side quests you might want right. to call her like mandatory like manda- quote unquote mandatory side quests could be a- that's the thing though they are quote unquote mandatory because loyalty missions in Mass Effect 2 famously affect the ending if you have everybody really happy you go into the final mission and you can get through it without anyone dying which has essentially become the mandatory way of playing the game uh-huh. I wonder if there's anyone out there who's you know replayed Mass Effect 2 in the legendary edition and was like alright YOLO like <laughs> I don't, I'm just gonna go in and we're gonna lose some people and, and just role play it because I feel like that it is possible to do all the side quests and play it through just makes it feel like, well, this is the only way to play the game. And it becomes quote unquote mandatory, even though it's technically not. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of like Breath of the Wild just going straight to Ganon. Like you could do that too. Technically all of Breath of the Wild is a side quest Mm -hmm. other than the plateau of the Ganon. I mean, I would even argue, shockingly, that Sweet Coden 2 encourages you to get every single person. Because oh, otherwise, sure. what are you doing there? I mean, it's kind of a, a template for the Mass Effect ensemble cast style where you're rewarded in Mass Effect more, I would say, because you get those ensemble cast bits of dialogue mm-hmm. because it's a smaller cast. So that's possible. I, I also feel like, I mean, it's funny that we're picking so many ensemble cast games because that's something that when I was playing Ragnarok I was thinking was a new trend but I'm now realizing it's really not (laughs) and that a lot of these games rely on having an ensemble cast that all comes together in some type of like fireside chat situation or like the Citadel or whatever it is and that that is a big part of how these games work you have a party like any RPG right and it's a great it's like a great avenue into making side content because you have all these different characters, especially in this kind of ensemble cast where it's different people from different kingdoms or different parts of the world. And then they each bring their own little flavor and you go visit their homeland with each of them and do a quest. And so you get this nice variety pack of experiences along the way to do your main story where, you know, a game like um, Alan Wake comes to mind is a game with just very, very shallow side stuff. Do you remember the thermoses in Alan Wake where there were just thermoses that you had to pick up no but i'm sure that i picked up I like one. the face that jason is making he wasn't expecting me to say the word thermoses <laughs> it's you there are coffee writers thermoses. just leave thermoses around and like yeah writers like and coffee <laughs> and you gotta go get it's them like all. a it's like a Twin Peaks reference, kind of, like a damn good cup of coffee. I think there's an achievement tied to it. Isn't Thermos like the name of the brand, like Band-Aid? Um, yeah, it's it's been generic. It's a, been the subject of a genericide, which is it. a word I learned from Emily and is a wonderful you word. You can actually lose access to your copyright when that happens, by the way. And there are definitely legal implications. I learned that recently, that Velcro has well, been fighting against that. Anyway. That's what keeps <laughs> happening to us when uh, Apple says you can triple click on your iPhone. We're like, oh, God, now what, what are we going to do? <laughs> right. Definitely came up with that first question mark. (laughs) Who's to say? Let's not look look forward to our to our legal battle against (laughs) Apple. So there are these coffee um, containers, warmers. I'm going to try not to use the word thermos. They're thermoses, (laughs) and they're just lying around, and they're kind of glowing, and you just pick them up. And if you there's like a hundred in the game, they're like the Korok seeds or whatever. Yeah, no, they're not. They're not like the Korok seeds. (laughs) 
No. Okay, my bad. <laughs> Maddie, how They're could you? nothing like the Koroks. <laughs> how dare you, That's a, It's a great thing to mention, actually, because I want to talk about the Korok seeds. But okay. no, they're they're way shallower than the Korok seeds because they're just around. And so <laughs> they kind of, you'll, you know, Alan Wake is kind of linear, but you'll get into a sort of open area. And then you poke around and then over by the outhouse, they'll just find a thermos. So anywhere you go in that game, it kind of trains you just through your, your stupid lizard brain. <laughs> gets trained to because you want to collect the things there's yeah. no he never acknowledges that he's picking up thermoses you don't see that in his coat is getting bigger and bigger as he's like stuffing thermoses yeah, it would be great there. if he had a bunch of lines where he was like oh great another thermos or if more he was coffee like, Finally, i love coffee i'm a writer what, <laughs> right, if he made, right. what if he said like one of those tweets he like did one of those like banal tweets every time like yeah. oh like, uh, love my hot brown caffeine water too much coffee hashtag <laughs> Love coffee. Have my coffee. <laughs> Writer Can't life. Function without my coffee. <laughs> That's going to be in the remastered version, right? Uh-huh. I hope so, so it it winds up it, it winds up training the player to play in a kind of a unfortunate way, I think. Um, I think the idea was to get you to explore the areas and find stuff, but what it winds up being, I mean, there are chase sequences in that game where a monster, this thing is like destroying a bridge and you have to get off the bridge and then you're like, but there's a thermos over there, I gotta get it. And then you're like running over to pick up the thermos and dying, which is just totally silly and, and killing the, you know, the flow of the game. And compared to Korok Seeds, it's actually like, it's a great comparison because Korok Seeds, I think, are actually a really cool kind of collectathon because each one is a unique little challenge or puzzle. And so, you know, you're never just like walking around and then, oh, I got to go get that Korok Seed. It's more you're walking around and you notice the bushes in this uh, clearing are in a kind of interesting shape. And then you start thinking, well, I wonder if I could figure out how to, and then you move them around and then you get that little pleasing uh, reaction, which I at least really like and do see that as a little bit different than just sort of knowing that there are a hundred things strewn around in corners that I have to go find. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Ragnarok's proclivity towards including NPC dialogue when you go and pick things up? Because that well, definitely <laughs> happens. They, we were talking about how it was chatty last week. Oh, yeah. Man, it's chatty. And it really, I've seen a lot of people talking about the way that they solve puzzles for yes. you in this game, which is out it's of a hand. Whole other conversation. <laughs> and, um, I'm more just is, referring to is, how and... if you like duck into a little cave and pick something up, sometimes Namir or Atreus or somebody will be like, "Oh wow, I didn't mm-hmm. even see that over there," or like some other, mm-hmm. con- or somebody will like get annoyed at you and be like, "Oh, I guess we're yeah. gonna take everything around here." Uh-huh. And I'm like, "I'm a video game character, man. What do you, what do you uh-huh. want from me? It's here for me." <laughs> it's fun to a point. There are times where I'm like, "Okay, yeah, you got me." <laughs> like I'm playing the game and picking up the glowing thing. <laughs> Um, I like how Mamir always tells you when you're on fire, just in case. Yeah, he does like. Well, then he says, "Not that I need to tell you that, because you can Uh, probably." uh, He's like, "You're on fire." I mean, you probably already know that. uh That's a a sign that you could maybe delete your Mm -hmm. dialogue bark. Is that the dialogue bark itself cannot justify its own existence? Character saying, "You probably (laughs) already know this." Right, right. classic, uh, classic move. Yeah, no, I mean, I like some of the some of that style of stuff in, in Ragnarok. A thing I really like is those little dudes. They're like the little wormy dudes that you can only attack from behind. That feels a little like a Korok seed, to mm-hmm. explain this in God of War there. This is a new enemy. I don't, this is totally a new thing for the sequel. But you'll just see these little guys, and they make a certain sound. They're a little like the, the Odin's ravens. And you hear that sound, and you're like, oh, there's one of those little guys, and it's this little sort of wormy dragon creature. And if you throw your axe at it, it just goes bloop into the ground. 
ground, and then it comes back up and keeps making its chirping sound. But if you can get behind it, you can kill it, and then it drops a bunch of upgrade materials. Mm -hmm. Those are fun because there are little puzzles, and it's just a little environmental puzzle. You have to figure them out. It's mm -hmm. kind of like um, Riddler trophies. I, I have to mention the oh. Arkham games in this conversation. Those are amazing, and those are those run the gamut from little kinds of perspective puzzles like that to full-on like unbelievably complicated environmental puzzles that you're solving. And they're all entirely optional and they're just around and they're very clearly signposted because there's green Riddler shit all over everything. But I do like those, the ones that like require something of you where you can just take a second to do a little puzzle. I'm a, I'm a fan in general of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I want to give a shout out to an old game called Baldur's Gate 2, which, mm. um, came out in 2000 I believe and it's got like some of those intricate side quests some of the wildest side quests of any game like it feels like uh, very much like a prototype for like the Witcher 3 model which itself inspired God of War Ragnarok I think um, in terms of just like uh, it's just packed full of these like in-depth side quests that have multi-steps and multiple complications and like might wind up with you like learning more about one of your side characters or it might wind up with you like owning a new house somewhere. <laughs> um, and it actually does something really clever, which is that at a certain point, I think it's like a, in chapter two or chapter three, um, to move forward with the story, you need to collect 20,000 gold and gold is pretty hard to come by. So in order to collect that much gold, you have to go out and do side quests so you're kind of mm -hmm. like you hit this gate where you have to do side quests which is something that we've seen in a few a few games try to do this in different ways um, and so it gives you a bunch of freedom to go explore the world and what's cool about it is that you can get you get a chance to do all these side quests and you know that you're also making progress towards the main story so it doesn't feel like you're off wasting your time for some reason when you go and like try to solve some uh, murder mystery in the slums or like uh, figure out like how to remove a curse from one of your party members and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that's a really ex good example of a game that I think does side quests really, really well in a lot of different ways, both mm -hmm. big and small. Um, I think a good game, a good, a well, a good handling of side quests, like has a good balance of big intricate ones and then also little ones where it's just like, okay, got that done with really quickly. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always confusing when they try to demarcate one from the other. God of War can be confusing in this way. Like, it's trying to Horizon tell you. There are some, there are times. There were, like, errands yeah. and all the other names. Right. There's these different... Well, it's right. confusing because in God of War, it's favors, which would make you think that it's, like, a right. little thing you're doing as opposed to quests. And favors include everything from find, the, you know, an ingredient in each of the realms for something... Or, you know, do a side quest with a major character where they're going right. to really reveal a whole lot about their backstory and their relationship with Odin and all this stuff to you. And you're going to get a huge boss fight and all kinds of dialogue. So they're still all kind of sorted together. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of tell. It pops up sometimes. You know, it's happening in the world. An NPC is like, hey, over there, we should go check that out. You know, the, the game tries to push you in those directions. But then again... Part of it is because that game is pushing you around so much that's always telling you where you should go and kind of weighing in. <laughs> like it never wants you to just feel indecisive, which I, I get where they're coming from. But there are times where I'm like, I'm not actually sure what the best thing to go do is. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that can be it can be a little overwhelming. Well, Mamir's got an opinion, so you could just uh, wait for him to weigh uh, in on whatever it is. He usually does. 
<laughs> well, I do like that the game. Uh, we, we've been trashing the talking, all the talking, a little bit, and yes, I do think that the chattiness has its as its down, has its low moments. But I do actually like it when the game is like, okay, now you can go exploring, and they make it yes. very clear, yeah. like this is the a clarity good point is very to go exploring, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, Me too. Just having that distinction between between the story quests. Yeah, there's I, that's something that I actually really value when games are clear about whether you are at a point where you can do this stuff and also whether you're about to cross a threshold and no longer be able yeah. to do that stuff. Yep. This has always been something, I've certainly talked about this on the show before, but the moment when the world changes, when the game goes into fifth gear and it's it's end game time and stuff is going to you know blow up and you're not going to be able to go back to where you were and it's all going to end, like... When you go into that unprepared, it can be a very frustrating feeling, especially because you have so much narrative momentum. You do want to, like, usually when I get into that kind of thing, I'm like, well, yeah, I want to see what's going to happen. But I sort of wish I had known that it was my last opportunity to do this or that. That happens very quickly, actually, in Mass Effect 2. So hold on. So now we have to talk about the exact opposite approach, which is, of course, Elden Ring. I had the exact same thought, Jason. Yes. <laughs> that game, that game should Ring. be included in this conversation. Well, so it's so interesting. Elden Ring has, like, I guess you could call them side quests. They're almost like main missions. I don't even know what Who to call knows? them. It blurs the lines. Yeah, to it very much blurs the lines. A bunch of little dungeons because that give you middling to cool rewards. I, would we call that a side quest? I guess. Well, no. Well, what I'm like talking main, about is like well, yeah. the, the ratty quest. Technically <laughs> so there's this entire quest line for Ronnie, for example, that uh, unlocks a different ending and that like feels like a main quest, but it's also kind of a side quest. Anyway, Elden Ring, more so than other Dark Souls games, is actually pretty clear about like the things, the steps you need to take. All you have to do is like check your inventory and look at an item and it'll be like, you should go here. Um, but still, you could like unlock yourself out of these things without even knowing it. You can make too much progress in the story and it'll be like, oh, did you just destroy this tree? Well, okay, now it's all over. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting counterpoint to um to God of War because they're both they're designed just with a very different audience expectation and then maybe that's because from knows at this point that most of the people who like from games are kind of attuned to this sort of thing but the amount I mean yeah like you said almost everything in in um Elden Ring is essentially optional I mean I think we. T- I think I think I said this when we were talking about the game that well, actually, video games are just optional. Playing Elden Ring, it turns no, out. No, but, but it's like all other but, but games like, aren't. But, it's like but, it's like Breath of the Wild. You only need two runes, and then you go to the capital, and then yeah, you, exactly. Right. Like there's Sorry. a lot of stuff that is optional, and that means the game has been designed in an actually pretty different way overall than previous From games. But they don't signpost a lot of that stuff. There is no Mimir <laughs> telling you that you should go here or there. There actually, like, there's that gold path the little thing that goes out of the bonfires but it's weird and doesn't actually tell you anything and it's very confusing um so like even that is is not that helpful Mm -hmm. versus god of war where it's very concerned with helping you along and there's an audience for that i mean as much as you know like i i wish it were maybe adjustable like you could turn that stuff down a little bit there are certainly people who just get stuck and are like i don't know what i'm supposed to do next i don't know how to beat this puzzle i'm never going to finish this game and those people probably wouldn't enjoy elden ring or actually, maybe they would. I mean, maybe they just play Elden Ring and sort of wander around and do stuff because it's a little more, it's just a more open-ended game in general. Yeah, I don't think there's a, I, I don't even know it. it's that different audiences. I think it's just appealing to different parts of your brain. Like if you want this like 
big, grandiose, explosive story, you play God of War Ragnarok if you want something that's a little more subtle and where the story is like kind of relegated to item descriptions, whereas the, the game itself is more about exploring and discovering than you're playing. Like, like God of War Ragnarok, yeah. you're not really playing it to discover things. You're just kind of like finding things and they're cool and um, it's not quite the same. It's, it's just very different, like appeals to different parts of your brain, I think. Yeah, the, the narrative is structured completely differently and as a result, side content works very differently because exactly. if you have a, a diffuse discovered narrative that's basically just you know little bits of stone at the bottom of a dark well that you slowly <laughs> shine light on in whatever order like that's kind of one story versus a, a someone reading you a book which is god of war it's just a story uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, it's very different so then side like what something even what it even means for something to be side you see content. to really understand the plot you have to kill the third guardsman in Stormvale and <laughs> right. check the helmet that he's wearing but if you read the item description it makes yeah. it all clear <laughs> yeah it's really funny to imagine Mimir and Elden Ring though i feel like that oh should God. be a mod that somebody should well make. that's I, like kind of i know people isn't... made the the like joke pictures of elden ring when it came out where it's like oh imagine if it had all the side quest markers Go and over like here. that's kind of one thing mm-hmm. but it's it's also funny to imagine if you had like an npc who accompanied you through the entirety of that game which is so silent and creepy at times but they're just like constantly telling you stories and like making you laugh and just I, I goofing off like it would be just a completely mm-hmm. different game and that alone makes ragnarok feel really different not just from like the side quest perspective but just everything about it feels totally different i do Mm want to say i think we'll get into this more on the beans cast when we really dive into god of war ragnarok but i think it's worth noting that like despite mimir being a little too chatty sometimes he's a great character by that for what it's worth but but i I meant it as a nice thing no one's trying to character assassinate mimir okay well he's gone through enough he's already been assassinated yeah no he's ahead I think I think this game could it would be really easy to screw up a game with this much yes. talking. But I think to the credit, um, despite the, the the a little bit of bloat here and there, I don't need him to tell me when I'm in fire. <laughs> it's to the credit that the writing team of that game that there's so much good stuff in there. And like his stories are captivating. Like I always want to listen to his his him telling the stories and his voice actor is incredible. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, this is Bean's cast stuff. We yeah. don't need to we don't need to go too deep okay, on, fair on the on the ups and downs of God. But but they and and that's in part because of the side quests and like the side quests, I think in God of War, um, I think a lot of games side quests are kind of defined by their writing and then a lot of them are defined by their gameplay and I think God of Wars are very much defined by their writing because the gameplay of the side quests is not doing anything super different from the rest of the game. but what it depends on the kind of side quests, like the yeah, like, holes or whatever they're called. And okay, <laughs> sure. I was thinking about the big ones rather than the bosses, but yeah, the bosses are cool. I mean, like Muspelheim is a whole realm that's just built around these crazy arena challenges that are really hard. Did either of you get anywhere in those? No, I couldn't get past the first one. <laughs> I, I couldn't like, either. <laughs> I played a lot of them in the first game. I loved, also, I loved Niflheim in the first one where you have to run through the timed, uh-huh. like, procedurally generated dungeon. I guess, yeah, it's worth budgeting your time for after, like, you're towards the end. There's, there's budget some more time for playing. Yeah, well, and I'm already finding, so, well, I found there's, like, a whole, it's basically side quest area, which is a different thing that isn't quite on this list, but where there's just an area that is essentially optional. It's all optional stuff, and it's all going to tell you new cool things about mm-hmm. the story but it's really just uh-huh. designed to give you more to play in without being main storyline so you're i assume you're talking about the thing in vanaheim right because that is like 
the type of area that feels like it should be mandatory. There's enough stuff in there that it feels like it should, should yes, be Yes, that's what I'm talking story. about. But really, I, I'm talking about Muspelheim and that kind of like stacked challenge. I mean, that's basically an arena. That's the arena type. Yeah. Um, and they're really, really difficult. And it's designed for people who are super good. And that kind of stuff in this game, also those Berserker boss fights. I loved the Valkyrie fights in the first game. I don't know if I have time to do... 10 more berserker fights because they're hard and they take a lot of time but like that kind of stuff is just raw gameplay you like this game we built these systems here it is again in a sort of tiered way Uh, yeah the point i was making is more that it doesn't it's not going to drop everything and have you do like kratos puts on his detective hat and like suddenly starts an la noir style investigation the way some games do where they like actually switch up the gameplay put you in a racing game for chocobo racing yeah i was saying my point was more that like it's the writing that really makes this quest in this in this game stand out i think yeah i mean i it's just interesting that in this game because there are so many written side quests you don't really need that much writing to be on you know on like a berserker fight where in in some other games i actually really like when they add some writing to that kind of thing um the gwent tournament in witcher 3 is a great example of this where you play gwent and it's got its own little sort of built-in narrative because you have to go beat all of the Gwent champions at each town you go to, and each one is a little fun interaction, and the cards themselves that you're collecting you know, becomes a sort of a story as you build your deck. But then you go do this tournament that winds up having all of this fun sort of behind-the-scenes you know, it's like that movie Maverick or whatever, or Casino Royale, where they're in the front, everybody's having a, a straight up game. And in the back, there's a lot of uh, dark dealings going on. And that kind of thing can be really fun when there's a story built into it. Um, some of the training grounds in Horizon feel this way, where there's a little narrative to each one. It's not just, okay, now beat the next hardest thing and the next hardest thing. And I guess I haven't finished enough of the stuff in God of War. Like, I don't know if in Muspelheim, by the time you're on like the sixth rank or something, there a story does begin to emerge. It seems like that's become a little bit more the norm. And I do appreciate it when they sprinkle a little bit of narrative framework on top of the just, okay, raw mechanics. Here's the game. More and more and more and more. Mm-hmm. There should be a racetrack, though, in God of War Ragnarok. I... There should be Chocobo racing, <laughs> Yeah, there should be Chocobos. Or like and a Chocobo dog sled breeding. race. I, dog sled, dog sled race. racing kind of surprised there isn't. right in in that game. Would. And... Who would you race against? I can think of uh, so many people, like a... but they're all spoilers. I, mm. It's... <laughs> Oh, well, like, no, like Kratos and Atreus. Yeah. 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 So Atreus takes the wolves from Midgard and Kratos takes the dog things from Alfheim exactly. and they race each exactly. other. And exactly. It's, it's a father-son father son. It's like edible. It's like, you know, you fight your own dad and everything. Sure. Kratos and Atreus <laughs> versus Odin and Thor, like in a father-son. Ooh. Yes. Ooh, in a sack race. Like a, yeah, sack race. Like a three-legged, <laughs> three-legged competition. Yeah. That is a great idea. <laughs> that is DLC <laughs> wow. on the table. That's a free one, Sony Santa Sony Monica. Santa Monica, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> These are the side quests we want to see. All right, well, this is a fun conversation. I'm sure there's more to talk about, but that will be in a future side quest on Triple Click. Uh, for now, let's take a break, and then we'll be back with one more thing. I'm sure you've noticed how giant corporations are controlling more and more about what we consume, whether it's our food our news, or even the shows we enjoy. The Greatest Generation is a show that stands up to Big Star Trek and says no. We can laugh about costumes that fit too tightly in the groin area. We can make a Star Trek podcast that's basically only about that. The Greatest Generation. 
the show for free and independent thinkers about Star Trek. And the groins of different costumes. Reviewing every episode in order. So subscribe to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org. You'll be doing your part in telling the Star Trek industrial complex that they can't control your mind. Hi, it's Kevin from Max Fun HQ. This year for Giving Tuesday, we're inviting you to a super fun tarot event. It's got some of your favorite Max Fun hosts, and it's for a great cause. Join Depression Mode's John Moe, Carrie Poppy of Ono, Ross and Carrie, Stuart Wellington from The Flop House, Tom Lum from Let's Learn Everything, and Ellen Weatherford of Just the Zoo of Us. Your suggested $10 donation supports National Casa GAL and their work advocating for kids in foster care. That's this Giving Tuesday, November 29th at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. Check out MaximumFun.org slash events for more information and tickets to The Tarot Show with John Moe. And we are back for one more thing. Maddie, why don't you go first? (laughs) Sure. So uh, mine is a piece of hardware. It is a new television. This This is a huge deal. Because my last television, I believe I got in 2007, and it was 1080p, 40 inches, diagonal, and the new mm-hmm. television. You've been, wait, hold on. You've been using yeah, a 1080p I know, I know, TV I know, for I know, this long? It's wow. It's really upsetting. It's really upsetting. I only I, just got a 4K TV like a year ago. I was using 1080p wow. as well. That's me. That's wow. me as well. So it's a smart TV. But uh-huh. also, I would say it's a huge difference to go from 1080p to 4K because uh-huh. I, I have instantly noticed the difference. So it comes in. We set it up. Everything on the TV just looks real now. And my cat, <laughs> Warren, got very upset by the new TV mm-hmm. because he thought that the people on it were real. And it oh, was no. extremely funny because he kept like taking a really wide berth around the TV while it was like on or playing anything. And like with his tail between his legs, like looking at it, like this is so messed up. Like there's a window <laughs> in here now and it's got people mm-hmm. on it. He has never reacted to the TV in that way. I feel like he's never even acknowledged it before, but for the whole first 24 hours, he was like, they put a window in the living room and I don't know why. And it's crazy. <laughs> anyway, I really recommend Make sure you turn off motion smoothing. If you have oh, motion yeah. smoothing on, that might throw him off. We did. Really. We did. <laughs> yeah, I should, I should see if Warren has any opinion on the motion smoothing and like see well, what settings I mean, he likes. So Appa hates no, well, 60 like frames look, per second. Yeah, so when, we, like when I first plugged, it was we don't watch anything at 60 FPS and I don't usually play games on the TV in the living room but when I plugged my Switch in mm-hmm. and was playing I don't know what it was maybe Mario or something that was running at 60 frames per second when she was a puppy she lost her mind just I think seeing things <laughs> moving so much closer to the actual speed of life yeah. made her think it was real in a way so Warren might not like uh, motion smoothing it felt similar like he had such a strong reaction to it that I was like really shocked I was just like I, I mean I can tell a huge difference but I wasn't expecting my cat to notice anyway it's freaking incredible every day we look at the tv and we're like it's the greatest tv ever we've we've made an excellent decision with our lives and now i'm a real gamer before now everything i did was fake now it's all real at last maddie i remember that i remember when i first moved from like a 480p tv to an hd tv and mm. i was like suddenly oh i can God. actually see the text <laughs> on the games that i'm yeah, playing it's like <laughs> updating your glasses prescription it's <laughs> part it feels that way it feels that way with games but also just like regular tv shows i'm like wow 
looks really good. Uh-huh. No, it's <laughs> funny. I mean, I so yeah, we we got like I said a 4K TV I think a year ago with HDR, and HDR is pretty oh sweet God. too. It was a thing that for so long was there was no standard. Yeah. So there was HDR in some PS4 games from you know that console generation, but now now I just plug my PS5 in. Like I said last week, I I played most of God of War on this TV. And I've never really played PlayStation games with HDR on, and it really looks wild. I mean, when the light, there was, I was talking to a character who looked at me and there was light behind him and the light was shining through his hair. And it just looked great. Like it looked, you know, it had that sort of the HDR thing where you're like, I'm seeing something here that I normally wouldn't see. So Mm -hmm. yeah, TVs, man. Yeah. They finally, they finally standardized it. So we've got the 4K HDR thing is pretty standard. Now it's, of course, they're like, get an 8K TV. I'm not doing whatever. I'm not getting 8K. What's really cool about TVs now is how much cheaper they are than they were a few years ago. Like you can get a great TV, like a, a few years ago, 10 years ago, you had to drop two grand to get like a good TV. Now it's like 500 bucks and bam, you got a oh, great yeah. TV. Especially this time of year, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. There's sales true. going on. So. Um, well, Jason, you're doing a game. I'll go quick. Mine is quick. Um, so over the weekend, I watched a a sequel that is all about, it's really a, a really moving sequel about a large cast of characters dealing with a death that they're all kind of dealing with. And it's very concerned with grieving and moving on. And I am talking not about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. I am talking about Reservation Dogs Season 2. I watched both of those things, and I like Black Panther, but I'll talk about that with the two of you maybe when you've seen it. Um, But I was actually struck by the fact that finishing Reservation Dogs Season 2, it's it's about some of the same things. And it was so good. And no one out there needs me to tell them to watch Black Panther, but Reservation Dogs Season 2 is incredible, and everyone should watch it. So... I talked about Reservation Dogs, the first season of this show, um, back when it aired, I guess like a year ago. And Maddie, I know you had watched season one, but I think you haven't seen season two yet. Is Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. So season two really picks up where season one left off and winds up completing the story. Um, So I'll say that recommendation right off the bat. I think a lot of people probably maybe saw that there was a season two of this show and haven't come back to it. So you should watch it. So this is a show about a group of teens living on a Native American reservation in Oklahoma. It's very concerned with that story, with the story of Native Americans in modern America and also just... I mean, it's entirely made by an all-Indigenous cast. Sterling Sterling Harjo, the guy who runs the show, is amazing. Oh, my God. Like, so much more amazing than I even realized. Because season two, it's still a comedy. It's still funny. But it really branches out emotionally and also expands the cast. There are stories about the previous generation, the sort of parents of the kids that it focused on in season one, and we get to see the ways that the kids are repeating some of the patterns of the parents. It's, man, the cast is amazing, and it really just winds up being this really, this just wonderful moving story about all these different people, this just whole group of people. I mean, it's, I can't say enough good about it, so I really just want to kind of Throw that out there for anyone who saw the first season of Reservation Dogs and hasn't watched the second season. It's amazing. It's so good. It's one of the best things I've seen on TV in a long time. So that's my one more thing. Reservation Dogs season two. It's incredible. And Black Panther was good, too. I'm going to watch Reservation Dogs as well. I'll get back to you. Uh, Jason, what's your one more thing? Um, My one more thing is, once again, Tactics Ogre Reborn. This one more thing is Reborn once again. Um... (laughs) So I talked about this game a little bit before, but I haven't really sunk into it as much as I have now. I've been playing this game on my Switch um, in between feeds, like in the middle of the night, in between baby feeding my baby a bottle in the middle of the night and 
also just like whenever I can sneak off some time. It is incredible, you guys. So this is a remake of a game that was released uh, way back in the day on the Super Nintendo, re-released for the PlayStation, re-released for the PSP, um, with a big remake that was popular, and now coming once again to modern platforms. Um, it's totally remade. They've changed a whole bunch of stuff that I won't get into, but essentially it's a grid-based strategy RPG, um, sort of in the vein of Fire Emblem or this year's Triangle Strategy, but really the closest comparison is Final Fantasy Tactics, which I know a lot of people love and have played and really adored over the years. This game is essentially a prototype of Final Fantasy Tactics. Same team, same director, Yusumi Mitsuno. Um, a lot of the same people worked on the game, and this is... Uh, um, it's essentially like playing another version of that. So if you haven't played it, but you love Final Fantasy Tactics, like what the heck are you waiting for? AKA Kirk Hamilton. Um, I so, have played it. How many times have I told you that I've played Tactics Ogre? I've, no, I'm talking I've about, played it. I'm talking about the remake. Um, so <laughs> Oh, I've played the remake too. I have it on my Steam oh, Deck and have been okay, playing it. Okay, shocking. Um, so Tactics Ogre Reborn, um, a couple of big differences between this and Final Fantasy Tactics. One is that instead of having kind of like a small focused team of five people you actually control this bigger team of like 10 to 12 people and mm -hmm. there are a bunch of different classes and skills that you can experiment with so there's a little more room for just like playing around and getting a little crunchier there's a lot of stats and skills and charms and crafting and all sorts of things that you can mess around with it's a very like systems heavy game that gives you a lot of room to experiment um, and uh, it's also just like really just you're constantly making really fun interesting decisions including like some grander story decisions at one point in the beginning of the game or in the first chapter of the game you have to make a decision that like sets you off on a route uh, either the lawful route or the chaos route and each of them have totally different stories and characters to recruit and all sorts of stuff so you, so you can like, literally choose chaos at the mm, beginning of this game you can choose <laughs> chaos um, and uh What's also really fun and just kind of like an interesting twist on a game like this is that so it's really challenging. The battles can be really difficult and you can wind up in these situations where like, oh, man, half of your half of your dudes are getting have gotten killed and like there's permadeath. So they can eventually if they're like little they have a little tick that goes down when they die. And if the tick goes to zero, they die for good. So you're like getting nervous. You're like, what am I going to do? But pretty much every battle in the game, the goal isn't to kill everybody on the opposing side. The goal is to kill one person. So if you wind up in this situation where you're like half your team is dead, what you can do mm -hmm. and what is a viable strategy is you can bum rush that one person with all your strongest dudes and you just throw them at the, the boss, at the target. And you can potentially win that way, which is really cool and just like adds another interesting wrinkle. And you what you sacrifice there is you don't get as much experience or as much loot because you haven't killed all the other guys to drop mm -hmm. loot and experience. But still, it makes it so you don't have to just like be like, oh, I'm going to reset now. You can also rewind time. So if you screw up, you can like go back in time and, and pick from an earlier turn and try to make different decisions that way. And there are just so many like little, both little and big decisions you're constantly making along the way. There are a whole bunch of characters to recruit, which is always really fun. There's a, a really good story involving like political machinations. And um, as I mentioned the other day, when I was talking about this, so many proper nouns, so many friggin' like names <laughs> yeah, that you get lost in. It throws you into the deep in. end from the beginning. It really I does. Forgotten it how. takes. I still don't. I'm like I'm on the third chapter. I'm like ten hours in, and I mm -hmm. still don't know half of what the people are talking about. <laughs> but that said, the story is really good. Aside from that, because the characters are good. There's some like really 
really this, interesting. They do a good job with context <laughs> clues. You can kind of tell what's going exactly. on. Exactly. You can figure it out. It could mm-hmm. use like triangle strategy. One of the things that game has that's really smart is it has like um, explainers for like who's talking and what. And like it, right. it, this game could use stuff like that or like a highlighting words to, to like remind you of what they are, that sort of thing. But regardless, man, I love this game. Highly, highly recommend it. People should check it out. I feel like it's going under the radar, but it's really, really good. And it will be like, it's like uh, such a perfect appetizer for the Final Fantasy Tactics remaster, which uh, is probably going to come out next year. And yeah. that's just going to blow everyone away. So I love describing a game this big as an appetizer. It's like I know, a 7,000 right? like hour game. Humongous, humongous <laughs> game. No, Here's your appetizer feeling... and it's a porterhouse steak. <laughs> I have a feeling I'm going to finish it in 20, 25 hours or so. Just guessing, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, nice. yeah, Tactics Ogre Reborn. Everyone should go check it out. It's really good. Yeah, I started it. I'll, I'll definitely play it probably a little later than now since I've already played it. There, you know, I played Let Us. What's it called? Let Us. Let Us Cling Together. Cling Together. I love that it starts. It's like Ogre Battle Chapter 7 Tactics 11. Uh-huh. It, it begins with just the most confusing I think, um, text and stuff. I think there was like, so it's part of this like ongoing series. And one of them was called March of the Black Queen, which is based on a Queen song. Um, I think these are all based on Queen songs. Wow. That's pretty cool. That is great, <laughs> Yeah, Let Us Cling Together is based on Tio Toriade. Um, Let Us Cling Together is a Queen song. So, yeah, these are all named after Queen songs. <laughs> mm. well, That's that, what you uh, should be listening to while you play, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah, yep. playable yep. Freddie Mercury, oh. uh, hopefully soon. Uh-huh. <laughs> nice. Well, all right, we did it. We, we did, did another episode of Triple Click. Look at us. We, we recorded a podcast like professionals. Uh-huh. It's like we uh-huh. do this every week. We did it. We again. did it. We did Yay. it. All right. Well, I'm going to go and finish God of War Ragnarok. We're going to see if uh, if Ragnarok really happens or not. And then we're going to talk about that on, on the Beans cast that we record next week. And uh, yeah, until then, I will see the two of you next week. See you guys next week. Bye. Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.